Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. It would be very hard to overstate the importance that the New Testament places on love. It is central to what the New Testament has to say, or what all of Scripture has to say, even. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Remember how he responded? He basically said there are two, and the core of both of those commands is love. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. The second's like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, incidentally, there's this movement today called the self-love, self-care movement. It's everywhere. uh, It's all all over the internet. Social media is full of this self-care, self-love movement. And one of the reasons we know that that's bogus is because of what Jesus says there. He says, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He assumes that you love yourself just fine. What you don't do just fine is love others. Love is this thing that reaches out towards others and extends towards them. And Scripture just assumes it doesn't spend any energy in getting you to love yourself more. It just doesn't. Love is central to God's law. It is the essence of it. And it's the essence of it because it's the essence of who He is. It's His character. And His law expresses His character. God is love, it says in 1 John. And so it's no wonder that his law is best fulfilled and expressed through love, or summed up that way. Love is chief among God's perfections. When Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5, you're to be perfect, just like your heavenly Father is perfect. He's talking about love. God loves his enemies, you're to love your enemies. It doesn't mean anything if you just love people who love you. What reward do you have? But if you're going to be like God, you're going to love people who don't love you. You're going to reach out and love them. God's not only communicated his loving character by way of his law, but he has made it the essence, the heart of his gospel. He says in um, John 3.16, I don't even need to look at that one. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole motivation for sending Christ to the world was love. It's the heart of the gospel. And if you've been loved by God, you're to love like God. It becomes your immediate necessary obligation based on God's love for you. If you have tasted of his love, then you are to extend love to others. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, says 1 John. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's our highest aspiration as Christians to love. It's the fulfillment of the law. James refers to love as the royal law. Paul calls it the law of Christ to love. 
Love is what I'm supposed to be seeking to produce in you today. It says, when Paul's writing to, to Timothy, his protege, he says, the goal of our instruction, Timothy, the goal of all of our teaching, all of our preaching, the goal of our ministry as, as ministers of Christ is this. It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We want a good conscience. We want a sincere faith for love, to produce love. That's our goal. Love is something that was opened up to us by Jesus Christ. Hear these words, powerful words from Titus. The book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And what he's saying is he saved us from that. He, saved, he opened up to us a new way, a new life, a life of love. We were in bondage to hate and malice, bickering and fighting, despising one another, envy and jealousy. That was who we were. It controlled us. And Christ has saved us from that. We were in bondage to it. Now we're free. Free to what? Free to love. That's a way opened for you by Jesus himself. There is no other way. And love is the way that we testify that we have tasted of God's kindness, that we have Christ's uh, power within us, that, we, he, that that way has been opened truly for me. I'm a believer, and I'm on that way. This love is the way we express that we have tasted of God's kindness and been saved, that we have faith. Remember what James says about faith. He says, without works, it's dead. And Paul makes clear that you can sum up the works that we're called to by love. Faith working through love. That's the bones that we put on, or the flesh that we put on the bones of our faith. Love is. Love testifies that we belong to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said about it. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To be without love is to be without faith. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God. A Christian without love is the greatest of hypocrites. The one who says he's in the light, says 1 John, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. It's incompatible, utterly incompatible with Christian faith. A Christian loves. It's who he is. It's what he does. So how's your love? How's your love? We are looking at a text this morning that's about love. It doesn't mention love one time, but it's all about love. I think about it this way. There's like six imperatives that Peter is going to put forward in these two verses. And it's like um, getting our oil changed at one of those fancy places like Grease Monkey, you know, where you pay 80 bucks to have it done. 
And that's because they treat you right. They, they, they go over the whole vehicle. You know, they check your, your, your lights. They check your fluids. They see how you're doing with your coolant. They give you a cappuccino. They vacuum your, the floor of your car. The whole works. And this is what it's like today, brothers and sisters. We're coming to the Apostle Peter, the Holy Spirit's teaching through Peter. And we're bringing our soul into Grease Monkey. And we're saying, if love is the engine of our, of our car, it's what drives us as Christians. It's what's to be under the hood in our lives. It's what moves us forward as a church and as individuals and as families, love. And what we're doing this morning with these six principles or diagnostic questions that Peter is going to ask us this morning. Um, it's like we're, we're pulling our souls into Grease Monkey and we're having God look us over, top us up. And I pray that you will open up your heart to God this morning as he challenges you and tests how you're doing. This is like a, a barometer for us. Very handy right now as we enter into an election season. Controversy, conflict, strong feeling. What's going to get us through it as a church? Forget as a country, as a church. What's going to get us through it as a church is love. Love's especially difficult for us right now, or it's a theme we need to hear and consider right now, because there's been division in our church between individuals, between people in the church and the elders. It's been a hard season. And there's good reason for that, or not good reason, but there is reason to give for it. One of the reasons is we're more isolated and separated from each other. We don't give as many hugs. We don't have as many conversations. And it's easy in those kinds of situations not to be exercised in love and to start fighting and nagging, despising, being suspicious, being hateful. So this is a good and timely thing for us to do. We go to the God's word this morning. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 is our text. This is God's word and it is eternally true. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is the word of the Lord. So Peter begins in verse 8. He says, to sum up. So what is he summing up? Well, he's summing up. Uh, a long section of his letter. He's bringing it to a close. And that letter had started by saying what it means that we've been called by God. You've been called by God to be something. A, a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. You're God's people, he says. That's what God has made you to be, and so then he launches on the basis of what you are as God's people into a long series of instructions for how you're to act. This is what flows from that. So 
because of what you are, here's how you are to behave. This is what you're to do. And he speaks to people in different situations in their lives, different standings or, or stations of life. He says, first of all, in, ch- in chapter 2, verse 11, private person, here's how you're to act as a private person. You're to abstain from various lusts. In, ch- in verse 12, he says, Here's what you're to do as a public person. You're supposed to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they won't have anything to slander you about. And in the day of their visitation, they'll praise God as they have seen your testimony, the witness of your life. Here's how you're to behave as a citizen, he says in in verses 13 to 17. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We could stop there, couldn't we? Spend a sermon on that. Here's what you're to do as a subordinate, he says in verses 18 to 20. Submit to your masters, not just to those who are good and reasonable, but to those who are unreasonable too. Here's how you're to behave because you're God's chosen people, his special people, his peculiar people. Here's how you're to behave as a sufferer. When you suffer persecution or be slandered or hated by the world, here's how you're to carry yourself and behave. You're to bear it patiently and not fight back or, or lash out. Just like Jesus. Here's what you're to do as a wife who's called by God. You're to submit to your husband. You're to cultivate in yourself a gentle and a quiet spirit. You know that passage. And in verse, or chapter 3, verse 7, he says to husbands, Here, here's what you're supposed to do, Christian called out husband. You're to live with your wife in an understanding, sympathetic way, remembering that she's a joint heir of the grace of life with you. So he's been talking to people in various stations of life, various callings, giving them instructions that flow of necessity from the fact that they are God's people. They're to act like God's children, as husbands, wives, etc., And he says, now to sum up all of you. Peter's speaking now to all of us in ways and in terms that apply to everybody here all the time, wherever they are, whatever's going on in their life. All of you. Number one, be harmonious. Be harmonious. What's... What's harmony? What does it mean to be harmonious? Harmony implies more than one instrument or voice. So no lone wolves can be harmonious. You've got to live in community with people to have a hope of being harmonious. If you're by yourself, you don't have harmony. What do they call that in music, musicians? Monophony? Is that right, Caleb? Yeah, monophony. You have one voice. God calls us to be harmonious which means that we're living together in community. What is harmony? Harmony produces consonants. I'll I'll play you some consonants. Those are three notes, and they're they're behaving well together. (laughs) That's consonants. Dissonance is is like the alternative to consonants. You can have that too. Ah. Dissonance. Consonance is when these, there's multiple voices and the, the waves of the frequencies that they're making, they're not all the same. We're not talking about marching in step and lockstep with each other. God has given us all gifts, various gifts, personalities, 
stations and callings in life, right? And he wants us to work together in harmony. Har- consonance produces waveforms of different frequencies that behave well together. <laughs> They're dissonant waveforms are like knocking into each other violently and it creates that tension that you heard. We're to be harmonious. It's like if the church were a symphony orchestra and Christ is the great conductor of it and God's word is our score and we're trying to play our part well, we are to do that in harmony with one another. We're to bring our various gifts to the table, submit them to God's word to the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ and to use them to create harmonious music together for the Lord's glory as a witness to the world. And if that's the goal, what part are you playing right now? What are you bringing to the table? What are you adding? Is your part sweet? Is it a real contribution? Is it part of the of what's going on? Are you listening to those around you and fitting in and finding your place? These are things we learn to do in music school. I went to music school and we play an orchestra and you learn to find your place, play your part, blend with the people around you. Are you being harmonious? Or are you playing your, did you show up with your own score, your own plan? Are you playing your own part? Are you, are you identifying yourself in opposition to those around you? Are you, making, are you off key? Are you adding a, a dissonant note? Harmonious can also be translated of one mind or like-minded. It is amazing how important it is to the New Testament writers that we be of the same mind. This pops up everywhere in scripture. Be like-minded, of the same mind. We read it in our scripture lesson. Paul says to, uh, to the Philippians, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We're to have one purpose and to be of the same mind. He says the same thing more pointedly when he's writing to the Corinthian church. That was a church you might remember that was more divided. They had divisions all over the place. And here's what he said. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Agree. And that there be no divisions among you. And that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now that's a tall order. You get two or three people together in a room and try to bring them onto the same page and give them a oneness of mind and you understand that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult. How do we do it? Where do we start? How do we get there, Paul? Well, he says to the, in his letter to the Romans, He says this, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty. (laughs) That's a key. Here's where you start. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Romans 12, 16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So as we strive to be of one mind, which is an ideal that scripture holds up all over the place, and we know that it's very difficult and challenging to get on the same page, we all have various opinions, we have various views, 
We have a diversity of feelings, backgrounds, prejudices, weaknesses, all kinds of things that bring us to the table at different places. And, and the work of, the, of God's Spirit in bringing us together to unite us in faith, to give us a one mind in Christ, which is of supreme importance to the New Testament, is very difficult, and it, but it's very much helped if we would all just be humble. Be teachable. Be leadable. Proud and high and lofty smart people. Be teachable by the, lo- the young stupid people. The poor people. Associate with the lowly and don't be haughty of mind, says Paul. You've heard many times from the pulpit that John Calvin has said, and he said this often in his writings, God could have sent angels to preach to you and that they would have been perfect. They would have done a perfect job. But he didn't do that. He sent men with feet of clay. Just dudes like me. Just a bunch of dudes. In many cases, you're inferior. Why did he do that? So that you would be humbled. This is very good for man's humility, says John Calvin. And humility is very good at leading us to this unity of mind that Scripture calls us to. So don't be haughty of mind. Be teachable. Be leadable. Don't define yourself in opposition to what's being taught or said. Be willing to be led, to be taught. This is what it means to be harmonious. And harmony of mind goes a long way to promoting the unity and love of the church. It flourishes under those conditions. So that's the first thing. Be harmonious. Find your part. Let it be a sweet part. Number two, Paul says, be, or Peter says, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. God doesn't just call us to have the same opinions be of one mind doctrinally, to agree on what is the, the, fu- the fundamentals of faith. But he wants us to go further and to feel how one another feels. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be sympathetic towards one another. We're to have real sympathy of feeling for those around us, to be able to enter into their griefs and their joys. Now, entering into the joys of those around us is particularly difficult, I find. Anybody else identify with that? Do you just love to see other people succeeding and being blessed? Why is that so difficult? Because of our envy. We see somebody succeed success, we see God's blessing on somebody else, we see their strength and immediately we're like, mine! I want that for me! And we get jealous and angry, we despise them, we do anything we can to justify that fact we are more worthy of that blessing than they were, that I'm getting, the, I'm getting a bad deal. We start feeling sorry for ourselves. We go down and down and down from there. We, the result of that is conflict. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it not your pleasures that are warring with each other? You want and you don't have, says James. Envy. 
is the arch enemy of love and of sympathy. Sympathy draws us towards out of ourselves and towards one another. We enter into one another and we say we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We weep with those who are weeping. We feel what one another is feeling and we're glad to do it. It's natural to those who are sympathetic. The envy pulls it back and pulls it inside and says, my whole world is this. This is my reality. I live for everything in here, not for anything out there. That's what envy does. It's disgusting, but it's often who we are and where we're living. But we need to put it to death and be sympathetic. Envy, jealousy, really puts us in... We, we're, if we give ourselves to envy, we find ourselves very often in a seat of judgment against others. We, I want to read you a, a, a few words from an Sc- old Scotsman named Robert Layton, Archbishop of Glasgow back in the 17th century. He says this on this theme of sympathy and envy. He says, if we could get I'm going to summarize part of it. He says, if we could get this into us, this ability to rejoice with those who are successful around us, to be genuinely happy for them when they receive God's blessings, when they're shown to be strong, when they have grace from God and be happy for them, if we could get that, which is the most challenging thing, then it would lead naturally to this ability to sympathize with others in their griefs and their sorrows and also to bear patiently with people who are faulty. We would find it much easier to do. But he says this. Some account it a sign of much advancement and spiritual proficiency, like to be a good, strong Christian. If they're able to uh, point out the flaws of others. They're able to say to this one, you know, you're kind of weak and small and not, you shouldn't be doing that. You're not a good Christian. Actually, you're too haughty and lofty and you're too proud. And you really, you know, you really should think less of yourself. And you, sir, you're covetous over here. That's what he's saying. Some people think that that's a sign of a good, strong Christian. He says scripture, though, is very different. Scripture takes a different view. The person who's able to lower themselves, they see the real flaws of other people around them, and they're able to weep for those flaws. Get down on the bench, he says, and weep and mourn for them. And where they can, to bear with them in their weaknesses and to be patient and kind. That's the sign of a strong Christian, he says. Everywhere in Scripture, Scripture testifies to that. That's what a good, strong Christian does. I've noticed a lack of this kind of sympathy in our church. I've been talking to people. I've been listening to people. I've been reading people on social media. And we're not showing ourselves good at understanding where people are, one another particularly, are coming from. We, you know... You can take arguments at face value and you can engage them at face value and that'll get you, I guess, usually this result. <laughs> you know? 
you don't get very far. You just sort of have fun, I guess, if you like that sort of thing, stating your case. But you're not persuading anybody, and you're not, you're not bringing, you're not loving unless you're entering into the thoughts and the feelings and the fears and the subterranean stuff that brings us to our positions. So let's take masks, for instance. We've had polar opposite opinions in this church about masks. Some people uh, think we should never wear them under any circumstance, and some people think that we should all be wearing them all the time. And I've listened to some of you. And what I found is, below the surface, as is always the case, there's all kinds of things going on that make those positions make sense. And it's not easy to to know even how to advise some of you. Sympathy helps us enter into other people's lives and their thoughts and their fears. Fear is a big, big thing. And we're able, through sympathy, we're able to enter into it and to, to live in somebody else's brain, walk in their shoes and consider, how would I feel if I had those realities in my life? Sons are not very good at understanding their fathers. Fathers are not very good at understanding their sons. And so what happens? Often we get into conflict with each other. Whereas if we stopped and thought about it for a second, we'd understand why my dad says that, why he's responding to me that way. Fathers, you would understand, why is your son behaving this way? If you just stopped for a second and entered into their world, their life, their fears, their thoughts. This is our Christian duty. This is the way we love one another. We think... We sympathize with, we have a sympathetic approach to the people that we're engaging in the church, especially. We need this. I've seen fathers who are seemingly oblivious to the spiritual and emotional needs of their children. They don't have any sympathy. They don't stop for a second and think there's a real person with a real heart and a real soul and a real mind that really needs me. How can I meet their need? We need to grow in sympathy for one another. Remember that God is sympathetic towards you, brother and sister. You remember those beautiful words in Psalm 103? Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Look around you right now. Just look to the left, look to the right. Look behind you, look forward. Dust! We were making compost last week with Ron's, Ron Weeks, Lucas's dad, in my field out there. It's a beautiful, smelly pile of compost. And as we, were, as we were turning it one day, it just struck me to say, 
This is us. This is what God made us out of. Isn't that incredible? The dirt. God remembers you're just dirt. Can you remember that one another? Can you remember and consider others framed just as God has considered yours? Have you tasted of God's kindness? Can you show that kindness to others? That's your Christian duty. Third, be brotherly. Consider your eternal relationship to one another. Husbands, look at your wife. She's your sister in Christ. She's a co-heir of the grace of life with you. Be brotherly towards her. We, use, we give family a lot of slack because we know we got to make this work. You know, we're in it for the long haul. You're stuck with your family. You can't choose them. And you, you know you're stuck with it, so you, you do what you can. You put up with a lot. You cut each other a lot of slack. Love covers a, lot of, a multitude of sins when it's family. Can you extend that to the church? That very natural instinct and reality, which is something that should be of great importance here in the church. We should remember to be brotherly towards one another. Your children together of one God and Father, siblings together of a shared house. So love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, says Paul in Romans. Fourthly, be what? Kind-hearted. Be kind-hearted. The marginal notes takes you to a cross-reference, which I think is very helpful. Ephesians 4.32, to try to explain this word kind-hearted, where Paul says this in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Have you been forgiven much or little? Have you been forgiven much or little? Then forgive much, just as Christ has forgiven you. Has God been kind and long-suffering and patient with you? Then be kind and long-suffering and patient with one another. Are you holding a grudge against somebody here? Somebody in the next service or somebody in the first service? Let it go. Let it go. That needs to go. How far has God removed your sins from you? The memory of them? As far as the east is from the west. He does not consider them anymore. So can you extend that same kindness towards your brother or sister in Christ in this church? Be kind-hearted. It means to be forgiving. It means to let love cover a multitude of sins. Be kind-hearted, brother and sister. We all stumble in some ways. We all stumble, says James, in many ways. All of us stumble in many ways. Have you forgotten that you stumble in many ways? We all fail each other constantly. Husbands fail their wives. Wives fail their husbands. Parents fail their children. Children, you fail your parents. Brother you fails brother. Sister fails sister. We all stumble in many ways. 
love covers multitudes of sins. That's what it's for. God has given us love so that we can get on, so that we can build something together, so that we can remain united. If you're unwilling to forgive, that's a real problem. I'm sorry. I can understand it is difficult to forgive. It's particularly difficult for some people to forgive. We all have different, unique gifts, and they come with unique challenges, personality types and makeups. And some of us are prone in our weakness to bitterness and resentment. Remember that God has forgiven you. And remember that what Jesus says, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. It's, it's of the utmost importance. Let it go. Let it go. If you can't let it go, come and talk to us as pastors. Talk to somebody who's older and stronger and wise and is able to bear your burden with you and to counsel you and pray for you. But don't let it stand. Fifthly, be humble in spirit. Now, hum- humility is a grace that feeds all graces. It is something, it's like the rain on the mountains that slides down the mountains into the valleys and makes them fertile. Causes, wherever there's humility, all kinds of good things grow in that soil. And so if you want to grow in love, grow in humility. John Calvin says, we know that the chief bond, the chief bond in preserving friendship is when everybody thinks modestly and humbly of himself. That's what, that's what holds us together. If we could only think modestly and humbly of ourselves, we would get on in the church and in our homes much better. And love would flourish among us. And friendship would flourish among us. And sweetness would flourish. You know, this is, it's been said of our church by a number of visitors, the love in this room is palpable. You know that that has been said in this room by people who are not Christian but who come in here and they're just like, I, I feel the love of these people for one another and it's powerful. Let's not let that diminish. Let's let it increase. Let's keep that alive. If that's the only thing to be known for, <laughs> there is nothing greater to be known for. That is the highest compliment a church can be paid. Let's keep that very much alive. Let's seek to be humble and to foster love. Clothe yourself in humility, says Peter, toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. And a proud church is a divisive church, and it's ugly to God and to the world. Lastly, Peter says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So every form of revenge is excluded from the life of a Christian. Your pound of flesh is not to be taken. That's not the way you're to live. You're to live by letting people have the last blow, the last argument, you know, the last punch. God wants us to endure wrongs. Remember how Jesus endured wrongs? 
That's why God has called us, is to be like him in that. It's one of the, it's, it's common, a theme in the New Testament to say, this is the purpose for which I have called you, is this, that you would suffer patiently when wronged. It is a very high value to the Lord, how you behave when you're persecuted, when you're maligned, when you're despised, when you're slandered. Consider it. You have an obligation to to demonstrate your faith by being quiet, by being humble, by taking it on the chin. Some of you might think, oh, I know how to do that. I got this. I've been hurt. I know how to handle that. I'm not going to bite back. I'm not going to say anything I shouldn't say. I'm going to go home. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to draw the shades. I'm going to let it pass, you know, lick my wounds here in private. That's not good enough. How do I know it's not good enough? Giving a blessing instead. Oh, no! It does say that. You're to give a blessing instead. Which means you've got to be ready. You've got to have it in your heart. You can't just go lick your wounds in a corner when you have a hurt feelings. You've got to do something. You're to respond. You can't not respond. Here's how you respond. You give a blessing instead. Wow. Wow, oh, that's hard. <laughs> that's not natural. But this is what Jesus did. Do you remember? It's so, so profound. The love of Christ. The humility of the Savior. He's, he's being mocked. He's being tortured. He's being crucified to death for sinners, by sinners, at the hands of sinners. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen the martyr, the first Christian martyr, said something similar. He prayed for those who were persecuting him. He had a blessing ready for them. We have to stop. But let's let love flourish here. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. And one of the arguments he makes in it is that if heaven's a world of love, since one of the applications he makes is since heaven's a world of love, we should be loving here and now, showing ourselves to be citizens of that country. We've been called for this very purpose, that we might inherit a blessing. Do you remember what it said in the scripture lesson? Remember, did you see and follow the blessing that Christ received for his love and his obedience to God? His putting up with it. here in this world. Incredible exaltation to the highest place. Do you want a blessing from God? I hope you do. The way to do it is to be loving. To love your brothers and sisters and to love your enemies. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this. Help us to love one another from the heart. Help us to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. Help us to be eager to outdo one another in showing honor. Would you preserve the unity of the spirit in this church as we live in these challenging times and these confusing times and fearful times? I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be humble and um, charitable, 
and kind towards each other. Help us to be sympathetic. These are gifts that only you can give. We plead with you to give them, Lord, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our high calling by you. In Jesus' name, amen.